Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, this is Mariah, and this is our Bugs and Drugs for the Step 1 Study Smarter series. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Today we will be talking about renal microbiology. These questions were taken from the physiomicrobiology textbook. And without further ado, let's get started. So we have a 19-year-old sexually active female who presents to the office with dysuria, urgency, and frequency. Urine cultures reveal gram-positive cocci. Which two lab tests would be most useful in distinguishing the causal organism from other members of the genus? Option A is the catalase test and the urease test. B is the catalase test and the type of hemolysis observed on blood agar. C, the type of hemolysis observed on blood agar and the coagulase test. D, the coagulase test and the catalase test. Or E, the coagulase test and the novobiosin test. So this question may seem a little confusing at first, but if we break everything down slowly, um, you'll see that it's actually not that hard to deduct this answer. If we break down the question stem, it's basically saying that this patient has the UTI um, it has gram-positive cocci on urine culture. And since it's a young um, female sexually active um, patient, we can assume that the UTI is caused by staph saprophyticus. Now, I know we know that normally UTIs are caused by E. coli. That's very, very important to know. However, this is not a gram-negative um, organism that the vignette is talking about. So since we know it's gram-positive and it's cocci, we can safely assume that it's some sort of staph UTI. So now essentially we have to just differentiate between the different types of staphylococcus organisms that could be present. So we know we have staph saprophyticus, um, staph aureus, staph epidermitis, and they all belong in the same species. Um, we can have certain tests to distinguish them from each other. One of the tests that we use is the coagulase test. And the only organism out of these that tests positive for coagulase is staph aureus. So that would help us in distinguishing staph aureus from the other two. So we can use the coagulase test. If it's positive, we can assume that it's staph aureus. Otherwise, if it's negative, we still have staph epidermitis and staph saprophyticus. So then that brings us down to the novobiosin sensitivity of the organisms. And we know that staph epidermitis is, is novobiosin sensitive. Staph saprophyticus is novobiosin resistant. So that test would help us distinguish between those two. And going over some of the other option choices, if we have a urease test, that would help us with uh, the protease mirabilis organism. And if we're using the catalase test, it wouldn't really help us in this case because all three of staph aureus, staph epidermitis, and saprophyticus are catalase positive. So that wouldn't really help us distinguish between our organisms. The hemolysis on blood agar is kind of similar. That's more used with certain types of strep species. So for this one, the coagulase test and the novobiosin test would help us the most for this patient's UTI. Next question. A 37-year-old male comes to the emergency department because of a three-hour history of dysuria and hematuria. His temperature is 38.4 degrees Celsius. His pulse is 112. Blood pressure is 158 over 84. Physical exam is significant for left costovertebral angle tenderness. UA reveals the presence of blood and a pH of 6.7, normal being 
An x-ray of the abdomen reveals the presence of a staghorn calculus in the left kidney. This patient's condition is most likely caused by A. Dehydration B. An organism that produces ammonia from urea C. High levels of uric acid or D. Impaired cysteine reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule So whenever we think of staghorn calculi, we always want to think of Proteus mirabilis, which is one of the organisms that can potentially cause UTIs. They can show imaging as well. It's a very, very prominent um, and unique looking picture normally. So in this case, we know that it's probably caused by Proteus mirabilis, and then we have to uh, break down the other choices to see which characterizes that organism. So option A says dehydration. Um, while dehydration does cause UTIs, it mostly dehydration normally causes calcium oxalate stones. In this case, we know that this patient has um, struvite or calcium phosphate stones. And a reason that we also know that is because of the pH of the urine for this patient. Since the urine is pretty basic, we know that this stone is either struvite or calcium phosphate rather than uric acid or cysteine kidney stone um, where the pH would be pretty low. Option B is an organism that produces ammonia from urea. So this is, in fact, the correct answer. Um, Proteus mirabilis does form ammonia by breaking down urea using an enzyme called urease. That's why Proteus mirabilis is a urease-positive organism. Option C says high levels of uric acid. This, again, is not true because this is referring to uric acid kidney stones. And option D is stating impaired cysteine reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule. And again, this answer is incorrect because this is referring to cysteine kidney stones. So if we see staghorn um, calcula or calculus or, or a urease positive organism, we want to start thinking about Proteus mirabilis. Our next question is, a 72-year-old male is admitted to the hospital for a community-acquired pneumonia. A urinary catheter is placed upon admission because the patient is unable to ambulate to the bathroom. After two days of appropriate treatment, his symptoms begin to resolve. However, on the third day of admission, he begins to experience dysuria, frequency, and urgency. A urine culture grows gram-positive cocci in pairs and chains. Antibiotic sensitivity testing reveals that the organism is resistant to vancomycin. The causal organism will most likely demonstrate which of the following. Is it A, beta-hemolysis on blood agar? B, PYR positivity? C, absence of growth in hypertonic saline? Or D, water and oxygen production in the presence of hydrogen peroxide. This question looks a little bit tricky at first, but if we break it down, we can easily deduct our answer. We have a 72-year-old male patient. He has the catheter placed. After knowing that the culture um, showed gram-positive cocci in pairs and chains, we can assume that enterococcus is most likely the organism that is infecting this patient and causing this UTI. Urgency, frequency, dysuria following placement of a catheter is normally enterococcus. Um, and also, this organism is gram-positive, um, and it grows in pairs and chains. And this also has the ability to resist vancomycin, which is very important. We have to look to see which answer choice characterizes enterococcus. So answer choice A states beta-hemolysis on blood agar. Um, so this is incorrect because enterococcus is a gamma hemolytic. Option B says PYR positive. 
So this is actually the correct answer. It is a PYR positive organism. And what exactly does being PYR positive entail? So this is a test in order to help distinguish certain organisms such as enterococcus and also group A streptococci. So um, both enterococcus facialis and facium are PYR positive, which is the correct answer. Um, option C says the absence of growth in hypertonic saline. This is incorrect because enterococcus grows pretty well in the presence of hypertonic saline or 6.5% normal saline. And D is water and oxygen production in the presence of hydrogen peroxide. This is describing uh, the catalase test and enterococcus is catalase negative. So this would also be incorrect. Moving on to our last question. A 24-year-old male presents to the physician due to myalgias and a headache. He states that he first noticed his symptoms after returning home from a surfing trip in Hawaii two days ago. Physical exam reveals conjunctival erythema. The physician suspects a spirochete infection and immediately begins antibiotic therapy. Which of the following complications is most likely associated with this patient's condition? Is it A, a painful genital ulcer, B, a maculopapular rash on the trunk, C, a painless genital ulcer, or D, renal failure? So there's a few key points in this vignette. So we have a patient who returned from a surfing trip in Hawaii. Uh, the patient has conjunctival erythema and a spirochete is suspected. So um, normally when you're thinking of these kind of things, and we also have myalgias and headaches, uh, we want to think of an organism called leptospira interrogans. So this is a spirochete, which is normally um, spread through water sources. So this patient was surfing, so we know that that's a, a definite possibility. So knowing that uh, that this patient has leptospira, we can break down the option choices. So option A says a painful genital ulcer could be a complication of this. And um, normally a painful genital ulcer is a um, complication of Haemophilus ducreae, which is not the case. Option B says a maculopapular rash on the trunk. Normally this is associated with syphilis um, that causes a rash which affects the palms and the soles. Option C says a painless genital ulcer. Again, this is actually describing a classic lesion that's seen in syphilis, which is a painless ulcer. Um, so option D, which is renal failure, is the correct option here. And this is something called, uh, called whale disease, which can cause renal failure eventually in individuals infected with a leptospira interrogans. And just a few things about this organism. So this is a zoonotic disease. Um, it normally transfers through broken skin or mucous membranes. If the patient comes into contact with urine from rodents or other animals, um, also water sources, stagnant water sources, and, and things like the beach where this patient was. And normally, you would see bilateral conjunctiva. And um, eventually, if this does progress to the kidney disease, you would have things like jaundice. And also, this can cause hepatitis. So that's also why you get the jaundice and you can get interstitial nephritis, hematuria, oliguria, things like that. So that's just a little bit about leptospirosis. Today we'll be covering pharmacology for renal. Our first question is, a 65-year-old male comes to the doctor for a follow-up visit three months after his previous visit. During his previous visit, he got started on a new medication for his congestive heart failure. Vitals are unremarkable, but physical exam shows bilateral breast tenderness and enlargement. His BMI is 25. 
Which of the following medications was he started on? Is it A, furosemide, B, lisinopril, C, spironolactone, or D, hydrochlorothiazide? So for this question, we know that our patient is being given a drug for congestive heart failure, and the options all contain diuretics. So this is a very simple question, just asking about which drug would cause the side effect of gynecomastia, which this patient has. Out of all those options, we know that spironolactone uh, causes gynecomastia. Spironolactone is a competitive aldosterone receptor antagonist. It acts on the collecting ducts, and it's one of the few drugs that actually decreases the mortality in patients with heart failure. And not only does spironolactone act by blocking androgens binding to the receptors, but it also increases the peripheral conversion of testosterone to estradiol. This overall causes an effect of gynecomastia and impotence in men. This question is just asking which of the medications causes gynecomastia. And just to review the other option choices, we have furosemide, lisinopril, and hydrochlorothiazide. So we know that furosemide is a loop diuretic that acts at the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. And side effects for this include hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, hypocalcemia, um, and also metabolic alkalosis. And the other option was lisinopril, which is an ACE inhibitor. And lisinopril works by inhibiting ACE, decreasing the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, and overall decreasing blood pressure. Some other effects that this might cause is decreasing the breakdown of bradykinin, which causes the inflamed face and the puffy face, which is one of the side effects we need to know for ACE inhibitors. It also can cause decrease of proteinuria and decrease in preload and afterload. Uh, this is also one of the medications that does decrease mortality in patients with heart failure. The last option is hydrochlorothiazide, which is a thiazide diuretic. We know that these act by blocking the sodium chloride co-transporter in the early uh, DCT. So side effects of this can include metabolic alkalosis, hypomagnesemia, hyponatremia, um, hypokalemia. It can also cause some um, sulfa allergies um, as well. Those were the other drugs. And now we can move on to the next question. A 50-year-old patient comes to his doctor for a follow-up visit regarding his congestive heart failure. While discussing his current medication, the patient asks if he should start acetazolamide and if it would help his condition. What is the mechanism of action of acetazolamide? And the options we have are A, that it inhibits carbonic anhydrase in the PCT. B, it acts on the sodium-potassium chloride transporter in the loop of Henle. C, it inhibits the sodium chloride transporter in the DCT. Or D, that it's a beta blocker. We already talked about some of these other options, but um, to talk about what acetazolamide does, we can just pick the first answer, which is inhibits carbonic anhydrase in the PCT, because that is indeed the mechanism of action of acetazolamide. This is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. In the kidney, what this will do uh, in the proximal convoluted tubule, it'll increase the acid reabsorption and inhibit the sodium um, hydrogen exchange. And overall, this causes an increase in the sodium bicarb elimination. And overall, it gets rid of your bicarb through your urine. This also acts in the brain uh, by decreasing CSF production 
and in the eyes by decreasing aqueous humor production. This can also alkalinize the urine and acidify the blood. Indications for this would include things like idiopathic intracranial hypertension, altitude sickness because altitude sickness causes respiratory alkalosis and this is causing metabolic acidosis um, and also acute glaucoma. Um, This can also help prevent cysteine kidney stones. That's one of the reasons it's also used um, because kidney stones made from cysteine form in acidic urine. So therefore, since acetazolamide is making the urine more basic, the forms are less likely to form. And to just go over the other option choices that we have, option B was acts on the sodium potassium chloride transporter in the loop of Henle. We already talked about this. This was the loop diuretics. And option C was inhibits the sodium chloride transporter of the DCT. And we also discussed this in the previous question. Um, This was one of the thiazide diuretics, um, such as hydrochlorothiazide. D says that it's a beta blocker. We know that's not the case. Um, We have beta blockers like metoprolol and the ones that end with olol normally. So it's a very vague answer. But yeah, the right answer is acetazolamide works by inhibiting carbonic anhydrase in the proximal convoluted tubule. And just to end, I will ask two last questions. These aren't multiple choice questions, but just because they're pretty high yield, I want to discuss them. So these are from physio. The first question is, what would happen to the GFR and potassium level in a patient that's taking an ACE inhibitor? We talked about ACE inhibitors already and and how they work. Um, So we're going to have a decreased amount of angiotensin II, uh, which normally would constrict the efferent arteriole. And now that we have decreased angiotensin II, there's going to be a relative dilation of the efferent arteriole, and this will end up decreasing our GFR. And what happened to the potassium levels? We know that normally aldosterone leads to potassium secretion, and um, it gets rid of the potassium and absorbs the sodium. However, in this case, since we have a decrease in angiotensin II, we have a decrease in aldosterone, and this leads to a decreased secretion of potassium and an increased serum potassium. Just some high-yield concepts to know. And then the last question is, which drugs are useful in decreasing GFR and can be helpful in treating diabetics? So we already talked about the ACE inhibitors, and the second class would be the ARBs. So the ARBs we know are angiotensin receptor blockers. These include things like valsartan, losartan, candesartan, and uh, these are normally used if the ACE inhibitors aren't well tolerated. And what they'll do is that they limit angiotensin II, again, which normally constricts the efferent arteriole, and this causes a dilation of the efferent arteriole and thereby decreasing our GFR. So ACE inhibitors and ARBs are helpful in decreasing GFR and treating diabetes. So there you have it. Thank you again so much for joining us. Talk to you next time on our Bugs and Drugs segment. Have a nice day and good luck, everyone.